and welcome to a special crossover podcast of Cannonball, Series Fun, and Voyager. I'm Eric Morgan, the editor-in-chief of Voyager, Northeast Wisconsin's Historical Review. I'm also a professor of history and democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. I'd love for my colleagues and good friends to introduce themselves as we talk today about nostalgia, specifically surrounding the Star Wars franchise and a wonderful toy exhibit that was featured at the Oshkosh Public Museum earlier this year. I'll jump in if that's okay. I'm Chuck Ryback. I am associated with numerous podcasts these days, but I guess Cannonball is sort of my brain creation. I'm the Dean of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at UW-Green Bay, and when I'm not doing that, I'm a run-of-the-mill English professor, and I'm currently in the long string of poor movie-watching choices, and I really need to break out of my slump, and I'm hoping today we'll do something about that. Ryan Martin, you are next. Hey, everybody. I'm Ryan Martin. I'm the Associate Dean for the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences. I am a psychologist uh, as well and um, uh, and a co-host of, of Cannonball with Chuck Ryback. And my feelings about Star Wars run very deep and are complicated and not altogether positive. So things might get real today. Brian Carr, go ahead. Yes, my name is Brian Carr. I am the host and producer of Serious Fun, another fine program on the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network. Uh, I am an associate professor in the Communication and Information Science programs here at UWGB, as well as part of the Women's and Gender Studies faculty and advisor to Black Student Union. Uh, and uh, based on the previous conversation, I'm apparently the problem child of the podcast, and I wear my title as the bad boy of arts, humanities, and social sciences proudly. I love that, Brian. We're going to have a great conversation today. Uh, you're going to totally love our show. Um, just for a little background, um, the inspiration for today's program came from um, a traveling exhibit um, titled Star Wars The Nostalgia Awakens, which uh, was available at the Oshkosh Public Museum um, in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, earlier in 2021. Um, this was a collection of Kenner Star Wars figures. Um, we'll get into the details details of what that entailed in a little bit. Um, and it was the lifetime work of Jared Roll. Uh, Jared it cannot be with us today, unfortunately, um, but uh, his his amazing collection of, of toys, uh, play sets, et cetera, was an amazing nostalgic trip back to my own childhood. Um, and that's why I wanted uh, us to get together today and, and talk about um, the origins of, um, of nostalgia in this uh, amazing universe of Star Wars and branching out, you know, into various other other universes. Um, just to give Jared some uh, credit, um, he's a Star Wars enthusiast and museum curator from Onalaska, Wisconsin. He's currently the director of the Monroe County Local History Room and Museum in Sparta. And his traveling exhibit, uh, again, Star Wars, The Nostalgia Awakens, um, features all of the Kenner, original Kenner figures, 100 in all, arranged chronologically by film in one single display case per film, as well as numerous ships and play sets which are adorned with additional characters in media rest. So, for example, um, one of my favorites was the uh, Mos Eisley Cantina, where a diminutive version of Han Solo is facing off with the bounty hunter Greedo. And Han Solo was definitely shooting first. Um, all right, gentlemen, so uh, let us get started. Um, maybe we want to go 
go back to the origins of uh, action figures and how uh, Star Wars um, initiated what became, you know, a multi-billion dollar industry. Brian, do you want to um, uh, chime in a little bit here about the uh, the origins of uh, this amazing story and how it was actually the action figures rather than the films that helped George Lucas, uh, the, the, the director and creator of Star Wars, um, to become a multi-billionaire? Yeah, and, and and so thank you. Um, you know, this is something I, I think the important thing you have to understand is that the modern concept we have of action figures and collectibles and you know nerd you know nerd culture being tied to consumerism really largely starts with Star Wars. Um, you know, Star Wars is the second, probably you could argue the second real summer blockbuster uh, with a hat tip to Ryan. Of course, the first is Jaws. I believe Jaws came like two years before. I think Star Wars, I think uh, New Hope was like 77. That is correct. Two years. Then, yeah. So Jaws was 75. Um, the year of my birth, by the way. Another thing we should know. About so that. you're just intertwined. <laughs> exactly. With the shark. Um, so, so does that mean something about, about you, Ryan, that you were born in the year of Jaws? I, I wonder. That's interesting. It, it, it does indeed. It was two great things entered the world <laughs> in 1975. Uh, and those things have been linked ever since. <laughs> This is where if we were in person, I'd be throwing stuff at Ryan. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but he's right. Ryan's great. Anyway, um, let's so, you know, Jaws was not heavily merchandised to my understanding. I mean, later on, they would do toys and tie ins and that kind of stuff. And I believe um, NECA just put out some Jaws action figures of the the three main characters from the movie. Now, I, they probably did the shark, too. I'm not 100 um, percent. But uh, Star Wars really kind of changed things. Now, understand that Star Wars was not a thing the studio was super behind. Um, Eric, as you know, we talked about earlier, Lucas had been, uh, you know, he'd done American Graffiti. He was fairly well regarded, but he's also basically blowing all his capital and goodwill from that movie on this giant boondoggle out in the Tunisian desert called Star Wars. Um, based on like old like Buck Rogers serials and World War II movies and samurai films, like basically it's all just like literally most of it's lifted from The Hidden Fortress, which is an Akira Kurosawa film, which, you know, most directors were lifting from Akira Kurosawa back then. Anyway, um, the uh, so this was a and if you ever want to really look at how much of a crapshoot Star Wars was at first and how much it was just like I've heard it referred to as an accidental masterpiece. And that's 100 percent correct. Star Wars should not have worked. There is no reason Star Wars should have worked. It was a tortured production. Lucas was not necessarily the best editor. A lot of the credit for the movie being as good as it was has to go to his then wife, um, Marsha, um, who was the editor on the film. Um, and I believe won an Academy Award for it. Um, but it often gets left out of these histories. And I just want to really give a shout out to her because she was. She I was going to say the, the first cuts of of Star Wars, the original, were incredibly rough. Yeah. The pacing was terrible. There are some great featurettes on YouTube um, that show how important the editing was. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, again, you know, we we, we kind of see the. The, the the opposite of this, right? When the prequels come out and um, Lucas doesn't necessarily have anybody to rein him in. Mm. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, incredibly important point about editing. Um, yeah. And again, like they cover a lot of this Empire Dream, so I highly recommend you check that out. Um, but uh, so my understanding, basically, that the deal was Fox is like, OK, you know what? We're This is getting really expensive. Here's the deal. You know, we can you can get your regular director salary or we'll just give you like a reduced salary and then you get to keep all merchandise rights because nobody's going to buy toys on this movie. Lucas is like, eh, I bet they will. And it turns out he was right. Um, that choice made him a multi-billionaire. Um, and 
more than any of the movies or anything else. That's why Star Wars arguably stuck around as long as it did. Um, you know, you can chalk a lot of that up to those toys and that merchandise. And that is why Lucas became a very wealthy man. So I just want to give some statistics here to back up uh, everything that Brian is saying. So Star Wars had a remarkably modest budget, um, $11 million. Uh, the most expensive movie of the 1970s was 1978 Superman, which caught five times that. Star Wars earned a staggering $503 million worldwide in 1977. Um, in 1978 alone, um, uh, that's when the toys started being produced. We can talk about what it was doing. Uh, a lot of that has to do, of course, because nobody expected this to be a, 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 a you know, worldwide phenomenon. Um, toys alone in 1978 grows $100 million. And for uh, our listeners who don't know this, in 2012, uh, 35 years after the release of Star Wars, Now a New Hope, um, Lucas sold his company, Lucasfilm, to uh, Disney for $4 billion. Yes, that's with a B, dollars. He said he kind of regretted doing it, uh, whether that's just because he didn't like giving up the creative control or just thinks he could have gotten more. And I think most of it actually went to like educational charities and stuff like that. I don't think he actually kept much of the actual sale money. Um, but uh, yes, but, you know, Star Wars becoming a major hit meant that every movie after that had toy lines and merchandise associated with it right off the bat, no matter, no matter how good or bad the movie was, because they're trying to make money on that end. And, you know, there's the immortal line in Spaceballs merchandising where the real money that's is right. Made. Um, well, Lucas, because he took that risk and took that, you know, pay cut. And I mean, it was $500 million pay cut, 500,000 pay cut. I'm sorry. I was directing salary that gave him the artistic freedom to do whatever he wanted to um, in his universe. I mean, he had already bucked uh, tradition, um, you know, the, the famous opening crawl of Star Wars films, as you know, most people are probably aware, almost always started with credits, right? Um, due to Directors Guild and, and Actors Guild you know, agreements. Um, and Lucas said, no, that's not what I'm going to do. That's not my vision. And so he was able to take these risks. Um, and these, these, these risks paid off, you know, um, tremendously. So, you know, guys, let's talk about what nostalgia is, right. Um, and why perhaps, um, Star Wars specifically has so much nostalgia tied to it. Um, you know, when the prequels came out from 1999 to 2005, um, I heard, as, as you, all of you did, you know, a lot of talk amongst our contemporaries who grew up with Star Wars in the 1970s and 1980s. George Lucas ruined my childhood. Um, I didn't believe that necessarily, but I think that kind of sentiment absolutely has something to do with nostalgia, right? Um, and so why don't we talk about, you know, what what is nostalgia and how is it tied into popular culture? And then Star Wars specifically. Um, so any of us who want to talk about, you know, what nostalgia is and what it means specifically with popular culture. Well, I'll give you two quick anecdotes. So um, the first thing I'd say is I, I have. So I saw Star Wars in the theater when it came out and I can remember that experience. And I was young then. Right. But Chuck, I also, how old were you in 1977? Just for I, I would have been turning eight. Okay. And the December of that year. And so I was. So Chuck seven. was eight, Ryan was two. I was born two years later. And then Brian. I was born in 1985. So I think all okay. the Star Wars movies had come out by that point. Okay. So that, that's our range of ages, though. Okay. So, so Chuck, Chuck yep. was, was eight. So I had an uncle at the time who worked at Toys R Us, which was like a boundless place filled with amazing things. And I remember going to see him at work and begging him 
to practically gift me for free Star Wars action figures because even at that time, like I wanted those because I had seen the movie, you know, and I wasn't a collector, obviously, like I wanted to play with them and get get my hands on them and recreate the things that I had seen. And the second story connected to that just quickly is I I can tie my giving up on believing in Santa Claus to something similar in that if you remember the original Battlestar Galactica TV show, which had come out, I want to say after this, right, and was looking to to emulate it, was I loved the ships in Battlestar Galactica. And so I went hunting in my house and discovered these presents, that, and that was it. My childhood was over. But um like, I just, I'm interested in that. Like, even then, I knew that I wanted these things. I wanted to get my hands on them. And, you know, to your point, Eric, at least to your question, like, I find nostalgia sometimes, like, I think it's, people feel it's self-referential, but in some ways, like, to me, it's the things that allowed you to bond to other people and that you shared a certain experience with and kind of missing that, I guess, in some ways. So there is my childhood in a nutshell. Mine is mine is similar in that. So I was I was too young to see the first one in the theater. I did see the second one in the theater, though, um, and the third. And I remember being really scared by the second one, by the way. I think I watched most of it with my eyes shut. I was only four. And um, and the, I uh, wept the, on the way out. I had to oh. be dragged out of the theater crying because I mean, I'm Darth old. Vader had to be really scary to a four year old um, yeah. in Empire. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what really got me was the uh, the snow monster at the beginning. I think that was what and it's right out of the gate, you know, so but so, I was um, sorry. Sorry, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> Brian. Brian is our fact checker. So yeah, that we're not I, mispronouncing anything or if we don't have facts, we have anarchy. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Well, I was I was truly, you know, these movies age wise just absolutely hit me right, because and part of the reason why is it also corresponded not just with the toys, but for us, our first VCR. And so I got to watch the first movie essentially on repeat. And I remember as a kid watching the first Star Wars till the end just hitting the rewind button and starting it over the second it was it was done and just doing that we had rented it and doing that for essentially 24 hours right just just watching this movie i also for christmas um got the death star um which was at the time a coveted coveted uh toy and and i for all of the reasons that chuck mentioned just the idea that i could act out the scenes that I could essentially live vicariously through those toys. I mean, I, I was obsessed with with the Star Wars movies throughout, basically. Um, I, in fact, so much so that I still remember accidentally spoiling um, uh, the, the third one for my brother, um, but just by talking about it so much, he hadn't seen it yet, and I accidentally spoiled something important for him, and be in him being so upset with me and me feeling devastated that like these are you know these are hallmarks of my childhood memories is just this stuff, and but and I mentioned in the intro that my my feelings run deep, and part of it is because I'm not going to say that anybody ruined my childhood. That's not how time works. Uh, but I will say I I haven't enjoyed them nearly as much in adulthood. And I'm sort of okay with that. I'm okay not being really a fan of them anymore because 
just because they were so wonderful to me when I was growing up. I had so much fun with them and and none of this has ruined that. I just but I don't necessarily consider myself a fan of Star Wars anymore. Um, even even though I've sort of liked them, I'm just like the obsession isn't there. The interest isn't necessarily there. I've had a really hard time getting my own kids that interested in them. And so, you know, when I compare it to other things that I am sort of obsessed with now, Marvel specifically, um, to me, it, it has been, I, I think, the nostalgia is really what I'm left with. I'm glad you brought up uh, your kids, Ryan. Well, Ryan and Chuck, you both have have little ones. Um, can you talk a little bit about, uh, well, Ryan, you've said your kids are not too interested in the Star Wars universe. Chuck, how about yours? I They are. Um, I, so I have two daughters, and so the emergence of the new the newer batch of Star Wars films with Ray as a lead character was really interesting to them to see a blockbuster film with a female lead in, you know, and they had seen the first Star Wars, or I mean the, what's the, uh, what's the new one? It's the force awakens the first one of that series. Yep. That's right. And, you know, so that came out before, Oh, Brian, will correct me if I'm wrong. So I'm, I'm good is uh, wonder woman that came out before then. And so, there was interest in Ray as a character, and I think they were they they were definitely interested, but they're not they're not obsessive about it in the way that like I would have been about Indiana Jones or Star Wars when I was a kid. They've kind of moved on. It could be my kids are weird. My younger daughter is into Criterion Collection and foreign directors right now, and she's. I the, mean, that's that's amazing, but yeah, definitely probably not the norm. Like she talks to me about Wong Kar Wai, who I finally saw my first Wong Kar Wai film, and um, you know, and I, I think streaming and the way that kids take in television and entertainment is so has kind of changed that. Like there was a specialness to going to the movies. And the anticipation of waiting for something to come out that I feel has been displaced. You know, the closest thing, Eric, that I could get to that is Stranger Things. When Stranger Things came out, even though it was about the time of my childhood and not theirs, they did get to experience the anticipation of, okay, season two is going to come out and it's going to be amazing. So that that is the that's my family situation right now. Oh, that's really interesting. And I mean, I think Ryan brought up a, a good point about this, too. I mean, our the way we we engage with entertainment has changed just drastically over the last five years with on demand streaming. Um, but I like Ryan when I was a kid, I watched. I, so my dad had taped um, Star Wars or New Hope and, and Empire Strikes Back on VHS off the TV. Right. So he like sat there with a little clicker to to edit out the the commercials and whatever. And that was actually my only uh, experience with both of those films um, until I was able to buy the actual VHS I, uh, when they were re-released in like the early 1990s. Um, so it was it was, you know, interesting to watch a better version once I wasn't watching my dad's like edited version. Um, but, you know, today, as you're saying, not only us adults, but, you know, younger folks interact so much differently. And that anticipation isn't necessarily, you know, the, the same thing. Um, like I'm thinking back to 1999 when The Phantom Menace was released. You know, people people stood outside theaters for for weeks, months, right, in anticipation of that. Um, and uh, yeah, it's hard to 
envision that kind of thing, particularly when you can watch the blockbusters at home, right? Um, Brian was saying he watched Suicide Squad twice this past weekend. So, um, yeah, I'm that kind of degenerate. Yes. <laughs> you know, to that point, Eric, that's interesting. You got me thinking about it because I can my other two kid obsessions were um, oddly enough. So Indiana Jones, yes, but specifically the one I watched a billion times because I'd recorded it was uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which is, I mean, I think the worst of the, those the weakest of the three th- of the three by far. Yeah. And uh, but I've seen it so, so many times because I'd, I had it, you know, it was available to me. The other one, oddly enough, was um, uh, James Bond. I We had taped For Your Eyes Only, uh, 19, I think, 81 off TV. And I just watched it over and over and over again because, again, we had it with the commercials and, and everything. And so a lot of my sort of modern obsessions as far as pop culture really have to do with stuff that we had access to um, in a sort of on demand. It's a great point. And for those of you who don't know or haven't listened to uh, Cannibal, Ryan is our campus's James Bond aficionado. So um, perhaps- indeed, indeed. I want to do that podcast at some point. Please have me on. So. Yeah, you know, let, Ryan, let, one, just do one, that. one very quick point is that I'm Speaking about movies and, you know, Eric, how we consume things like I was talking to my daughters the other day about, you know, they've never in their lives had to wait to hear a song that they want to hear. Like they don't have to wait for the top eight at eight or you don't have to call anybody to request something, you know, like there there's no the anticipation is is not there. They just experience it in a different way. It's so true. You know, um, one of my favorite albums when I was a, a, t- a teenager. I was a huge fan of U2. And when their album Pop came out in 1997, the anticipation for me personally was was massive. I, um, I kind of skipped school early that day, I think. It was my senior year of high school. Went to the Best Buy or wherever it was in the mall. Came home, put that CD on, um, and, you know, just listened to it over and over and over again. And, you know, now, right, do we even listen to albums, right? Um, the, the concept of an album is uh, perhaps a, uh, I don't know, a, a, a nostalgic one now, right? So that would be a good, um, certainly a good conversation for, for another podcast with some of our music folks, perhaps. Um, My my nephew, just real quick, my nephew just recently told me he stayed up and like super late one night waiting for someone's album to drop. And then it didn't. And he did it purely based on a rumor that he heard it might drop that night. So he was waiting on Spotify all all evening for it to drop. And so there is there is a piece of that. But you're right. It's super rare now. I remember the first time my kids saw a commercial. And we're utterly floored. <laughs> like my, my son came in. He's like, they keep breaking into my show to try and sell me stuff. What What is going on? You know? Well, what's funny, too, is how, you know, we grew up with commercials, obviously. But now, like when they pop up on any of the streaming services that, that have them, I get really annoyed because I've also acclimated so much to not having that. Um, and they pop up everywhere. It's not just, you know, on streaming services. Um, but, you know, people have bills to pay, I suppose. Um, so is there anything about, you know, the Star Wars universe itself um, that lends itself particularly towards nostalgia? I wanted to go back to an earlier point that Chuck was making about buying the toys, playing with the toys, recreating 
um, those scenes from the films. But I also think what these action figures allowed was, you know, not just the ability to relive the films, but to be creative, right? And to work that imagination, which is so important, um, you know, when you're when you're a kid, to imagine possibilities. And I think that's what I liked about the various action figures. Um, uh, G.I. Joe was my other big one. I know that for you, Ryan, that was another big one too. Um, and so I, I loved being able to create new adventures out of, out of that, um, rather than, you know, just, just doing the same thing. Um, so I just wanted to mention, I think that was one of the cool things about, um, the, the action figures that respond from the Star Wars franchise is that it allowed kids to, you know, not only use their imaginations, but they had this tangible thing, right, that they that they could, you know, physically do and have these adventures with. Um, so is there something about Star Wars itself, um, whether it's a storytelling, whether it's it's, you know, a classic Joseph Campbell hero's journey, um, whether it's the vast universe and the world building um, that that seems to lend itself to uh, nostalgia. I have not heard a single person uh, with Marvel's cinematic universe saying, oh, you know, Marvel has ruined my childhood from, you know, the the Jack Kirby days or whatever. So I'm interested. So I'll, uh, my personal kind of fandom for Star Wars, honestly, you know, because I, I, I watched the movies, I had the VHS, you know, with like the interviews with Lucas and all that. Um, but what really was my Star Wars were the books, uh, the novels, like you had like your, uh, you know, um, Wraith Squadron and you know, that was the, I mean, like uh, the the Wedge Antilles, uh, you know, that kind of stuff with like the X-Wing pilots. That's the stuff I really spent a lot of time reading. Right. And so what struck me in the way I've always thought about Star Wars is that so much of, you know, Star Wars is this idea like there's a million characters, um, you know, in each movie. Most of them are not going to have speaking parts. Most of them are not going to, um, you know, really do a whole lot. But the way that they have built out this franchise largely to make money from it, I don't think this is all a creative decision, was that each of these characters has a backstory, right? And that backstory either comes from Lucas in some cases or was established on the back of, a, uh, of one of the original action figure boxes or in a novel or a comic somewhere. But, you know, people will come to this and say, hey, here's this one guy who shows up like – there are diehard fandoms for the bounty hunters in Empire Strikes Back. Not even like, you know, Boba Fett is a character that basically exists in the popular consciousness because he was cool and made a cool toy. Um, Who has like four lines and then none yeah. of the other um, bounty hunters even utter a single word um, right. on Darth Vader's ship. Right. But as you say, people are, are huge fans, right? Yeah, exactly. I will ride or die for Zuckus, okay? Um, <laughs> you know, he's just a weird little bug man. I love him. Um but, you know, and, and so what strikes me is that this whole big universe is this perfect sort of canvas for different creatives to play in. Like some of the most enduring Star Wars stuff for me is not even stuff that Lucas did. Um, it's, you know, folks like Michael Stackpole. Um, it's uh, um, Zahn. Zahn. Yep. Zahn. So I just want to, uh, for, for, for our listeners who don't you know, know about this, this was known uh, before Disney uh, purchased Lucasfilm as the expanded universe. It's now yep. known as Legends. Um, mm -hmm. So Star Wars used to have this kind of complicated um, canon system, right? And basically like anything that was in a film or came out of Lucas's mouth was canon. And then there are all these other levels. Uh, but basically now it's just 
what Disney says, and then this thing called Legends. Yep. Um, and so, as as Brian was was saying, um, you had video games, you mm-hmm. had um, tons of novels, you had comic books. Uh, I read the Marvel comic books in mm-hmm. the 1990s, and there were all of these characters. Um, there's actually a, a few really interesting books that have just come out. The first one, so they're 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 uh, retellings of the original trilogy. Each chapter is from the point of view of a very minor character from mm-hmm. the film who might not even have a speaking role. The first book's called From a Certain Point of View. Um, it's really interesting. Um, I think like one of the desert rats even has like they're very short stories. They're really interesting. And I wanted to mention, since you're bringing up very minor characters, I don't know if any of you know this, but a former colleague of ours is a expanded universe character. Um, Greg Aldrete, our uh, our former um, colleague in humanities and history, um, he had friends who worked in the Star Wars universe, worked for Lucasfilm. I think he had a friend who wrote one novel, and then he also had a friend who um, helped Lucasfilm find the original uh, Tunisian um, uh, film sites because they had been lost. Um, because as we know, Greg was a, is a ancient historian, archaeologist, etc. Um, and so there is a character from the Phantom Menace. You can look him up. His name is Agrippa Aldrete. Uh, Agrippa was Greg's favorite Roman emperor, and then Aldrete his last name. So yeah, look it up. Agrippa Aldrete. There he is. That's amazing. That, and that might be know, the coolest fact I've learned in uh, quite some time. So that's Eric, amazing. Yeah. I already thought Greg was pretty amazing. Right, exactly. So, so that yeah. you cannot start every like PAR off with that information. <laughs> you know, whatever else I I've would. done, I was in Star Wars, man. You know, Eric, to your to your question, like I, I think about this a lot and I you know, when I've rewatched the Star Wars movies, to me like the first two, there's a lot of those that shouldn't have worked. Like Darth Vader spends the majority of the first two movies in meetings. Now, I understand why that would make him evil, but like... Reminds me of Academia. These are blockbuster movies that have meetings as like set pieces. You know, they just have meetings. And But I also, like, one of the things that at least resonated for me, thinking about growing up in the constant fear of nuclear war, that you could watch something with a planet-killing technology be defeated by just a small group of of people and that 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 resonated for me i mean i know the cold war long predates me and it you know for me i attach nuclear catastrophe to the reagan years really and kind of the build-up there and so star wars was ahead of that for me you know not in the public consciousness but in mine at least that i don't know there it was the it was the greatest fear i had as a child and that movie seemed to address it for me. I I think it absolutely was in the public consciousness. I mean, I think we often forget, you know, Star Wars, Star Wars phenomenon. It may not have been the same at a different time. Um, Let's look at what's happening in in May of 1977 when Star Wars comes out. Right. Um, We're just emerging from the the Vietnam War debacle. We are just emerging from the Watergate scandal and the complete distrust of the American people in the U.S. government. I mean, that's why Jimmy Carter won a close election in 1976. Right. He was an outsider and he was able to, you know, bring uh, an honesty to to the White House that didn't exist um, with the, the presidencies in the 1960s and the 1970s. The American economy was completely 
awful, right? You had stagnating wages and um, incredible inflation. It was a dark time. It was definitely a dark time. Um, and the Cold War absolutely was 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 there in everyone's consciousness. Um, and you had an energy crisis as well. So Star Wars offered this really stark black and white worldview. You know, the the empire was evil. The rebellion was good. And, um, you know, despite the fact that the uh, the evil empire had this, you know, world destroying new weapon, the Death Star, we got to see this ragtag bundle of 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 rebels um, who were fun, um, who were idealistic. Uh, we got to see them defeat this evil. And honestly, I think Star Wars was exactly what people needed in 1977. It was it was, you know, people may not have been thinking that necessarily consciously, but subconsciously they needed that. You know, it was escapism, but it was also like it was something that they could look at and and say, wow, you know, there is good in the world. There is good in the universe. Um, you know, there is hope. And it's it's one of the reasons people saw it, you know, six, seven, eight, ten times. Nobody does that anymore. So, Chuck, I think you brought up a great point. And I, I think the, the, the public shared your sentiment without question. I think it's very it's you know it's something we don't talk about the historic context of of Star Wars emerging at this this very specific time when it was absolutely needed. And never forget this is an inherently political film. Um Lucas has been very very open about who the empire is meant to represent and it ain't it, it it isn't the you know it isn't our enemies it's us right? America is supposed to be the empire. Um you know and that's why I always get a little I, 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 I'm gone past laughing. I don't, I don't laugh anymore. I just get mad when people are like, I don't like that they're introducing politics into Star Wars. Politics was already there, right? What you're mad about is that women and people of color are in it, and that's a completely different problem that you need to get help with. But, um, and you know, we saw a similar thing, uh, you know. And speaking of like franchises built on nostalgia for a bygone era, Lord of the Rings, right? When the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which by the way is my um, second favorite film trilogy, not behind Star Wars, but behind The Naked Gun. Um, but my, uh, but when that series came out, it came out right after 9-11, like it was around the holidays after 9-11 and those movies, you know, were obviously in production well before that, but they became sort of this thing, like almost like they took on greater resonance at that time. And I definitely remember like, you know, this, you know, the controversy over, are they going to call it the two towers? How disrespectful. It's like Tolkien wrote the two towers like decades ago. It's fine. Um, but you know, uh, the, the speech that Sam gives at the end of it is, you know, kind of he took on that resonance, you know, that there is good in the world we're fighting for a lot more explicitly, I think, than Star Wars did, but coming from that same sort of place. I think that speech was added after the fact, after the... It might I mean, have it's, been. It's from the, uh, I mean, it's from the, the novel, or a very a version is from the novel, but I think the decision to include it was made after after the fact. No, I, I wanted to right. say something about the, the the toys in particular and, and why I think they hit the way they did is that I think the inventiveness, I, I think, you know, the inventiveness of the characters, the way they looked was not something we had seen a ton of. But also, I think the, the thing that people really seemed to covet at the time were the the the, the crafts, you know, the ships, the Death Star. The I mean, I, I was thinking, Chuck, of your story. So my best friend growing up. Uh, told me once he was raised in a in a relatively conservative Christian household, and he said he prayed every night for an adat after uh, after um, whatever came out, Empire Strikes Back came out. He said he prayed every that. night. 
for an ad ad. And um, he said when he didn't get it, he actually lost his faith in God. And so <laughs> your friend this, became an atheist because yeah, he did not get exactly. But the best part about this story is that the last time I was at his house, he has one now. So as an adult, he solved this problem. I don't know if he has faith in God anymore, but um, but I think that that speaks to uh, to something about the how cool. I mean, I never had an ad at right. How cool that craft, that structure was and how different it was from other things we've seen that the X-Wing fighters, all of that was so um was so clever and it really was in a, in a lot of ways more clever than most toys to come out of that era the well, only I was thing say yeah comp- compare the you know the death star playset that you had with mm-hmm. like i don't know barbie's house yeah. or I, I don't even know if the gi joe's from the 1960s had playsets i mean in the 1980s version they did but the 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 larger universe was important to the star wars toys ryan i absolutely agree with that Right. I mean, even like, you know, the other the other big toy I had that I was super proud of as a kid was Castle Grayskull from. Oh, uh, man, that was awesome. Yeah, I loved it. It was cool, but it was in no way as cool as as the Death Star. Like that was just such a rad toy that like had so many different elements front and built right from the movie. Right. The little the the garbage monster. The I I know it has a name, Brian. Um, The the, the Millennium uh, Falcon was the prized moment of my youth, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. It's the Dianaga, by the way. <laughs> I knew you'd know it. I knew you'd know I it. There is actually, in the book that uh, Eric referred to, there is a story written from the perspective of uh, the Dianaga by uh, African futurist writer Nettie Okorafor. I believe that's nice. the one she wrote. And it's tremendous. Like that whole, and, and shout out to John Jackson Miller, uh, Wisconsin native, and, uh, you know, someone who's been on my show before. Um, he's, uh, he also has a story and I actually have a copy of that first one that he signed. I have to get the empire strikes back or, uh, one. I haven't gotten that one yet, but do you remember the title of the empire strikes back when I don't either? I think they're all from a certain point of view. view. Like, that's okay. just the anthology brand, um, that they're using, but it's, it's a really cool idea. So I wanted to give our listeners just a little background on the Star Wars action figures. They had a bit of a rocky start. Um, merchandising was something that Lucas wanted to do from the beginning, obviously, because he, you know, he f- forwent um, half a million dollars of his director's salary to uh, maintain that that kind of control. Um, he went to a few um, toy producers. Uh, the Mego Corporation was the largest toy producer at the time. They passed. And finally, Kenner, based out of Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, they're now defunct, I believe, but um, they agreed to produce these toys. And interestingly, you know, the film debuts in May of 1977. The first toys were not shipped for nearly a year later um, because uh, the, the phenomenon, obviously nobody knew it was going to become this phenomenon. Early on, and these action figures, they were 3.75 inches, which, uh, Brian, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but those were smaller than previous um, action figures from the 1960s, which were much larger. Um, And uh, early on, you couldn't even buy the actual action figures. You had to send in this early bird certificate. It was just this piece of cardboard, basically. Um, And so, um, you know, Lucas would have made even more had, you know, Kenner actually started producing toys in 19, earlier 1977. But yeah, think about it, you know, what, seven or eight months in, there were no toys available for Christmas of 1977. So it wasn't until 1978 when people could um, actually buy these toys. And then there were 100 total action figures um, from the original 
um, toy run, which was from 1978 to 1985, plus all the sets, etc. And in uh, Jared Roll's collection, he has all of those toys. Um, and it was really, really um, amazing uh, to see. So that's kind of the history behind um, uh, those action figures. Um, do we... Did, do we do, since since the Star Wars action figures have any other franchises um, come close to um, you know the the toy popularity and the kind of nostalgia that those toys um, still bring up? I'm telling you, just as a, a personal anecdote, when I was walking around the the museum in Oshkosh, I was transported back without question i wanted to break the glass and play with all of them i really really <laughs> did so uh, and uh so do we have any other examples of um you know franchises that created the same kind of excitement and like where are we today i mean i don't i don't really i don't have children i don't play with toys myself but are there you know modern examples and i think brian's going to show us some yes I, um, so i actually um you know most of the franchises that have come close in terms of just like fandom and excitement are to or toys primarily. You know, you have Transformers. It still remains very, very big. Um, you know, uh, Masters of the Universe, He-Man, still huge, way bigger than I thought. Um, I'm going to be completely honest. I was never a He-Man guy. I, I was it was too late. It was too early for me. Um, you know, I was a Ninja Turtles kid. Ninja Turtles still remains pretty big. Um you know, and, and but nothing really hit the way because understand that Star Wars also, you know, broke the seal like licensing for Lego. Right. To my understanding, there weren't a lot of like licensed Lego sets before Star Wars. Star Wars became and because, you know, Star Wars also was like really kind of kept in the consciousness by the merchandise. Right. Um, you know, there was a point in time where nobody really cared about Star Wars, as weird as that is to say. Um, you know, there was you saw the diehards who were buying the toys as Lucas was still putting them out. They had the power of the force. Um, they tried doing like, you know, transmedia tie ins with like Shadows of the Empire back um, when I was a kid, you know, with like the game and the novels and the comics and the toys and all that. Um, you know, and, and you know, the the Star Wars also uh, toys also going to change the way that other toy lines are made. As you mentioned, G.I. Joe, I believe these be like 12 inch kind of like uh, Barbie sized dolls. Um, the more recent G.I. Joe's after that shrunk down to that three point seven five inch uh, three and a quarter inch scale. Um, because of the popularity of Star Wars, it was also, I think, a cheaper way to uh, you could produce them on mass. And, you know, there's a lot to take out of that. Um, you know, and you could also argue part of the reason that Phantom Menace and the, the prequels happened is that Lucas's toy money was drying up and you kind of needed to get some more. Um, and those toys all sold like crazy at first. And then after the movie came out, things got kind of dicey. Um, but there's a few things about the modern action in, in figure industry that's important to note. Number one is that there are still a lot of lines aimed at kids. But by and large, you know, one of the kind of truisms or things that gets repeated a lot is that most kids aren't playing with action figures the way they used to. Not at the same level, not at the same scale. They've got their phones, they've got video games, they've got other stuff. So a lot of what the toy aisle is becoming are higher scale action figures. So most action figures are going to now be in that like six to seven to eight, uh, inch line. So the modern kind of Star Wars toys, they still do some of the retro throwbacks. They call them vintage. They even put them in like the old card backs with like the Kenner logo on. Kenner doesn't exist as a company, but they still use the logo. Um, you know, and, and they'll do some. They also do like a, a, another line that's a little bit more articulated and has more features. But then the kind of like uh, prestige hobby one right now 
now before we even get to like imports and like action figures from like Japan and that kind of stuff, which is where it gets really crazy for collectors and all that, um, you know, is, is the black series. So these are six inch action figures. Um, they're what we call 112 scale. So, you know, technically if a character is taller than six feet, their action figure is going to be a little bit taller, but most of them are going to be around six inches depending on the height of the character, right? These are going to run you about 20 to $25 depending on, you know, the character, depending on, um, the exclusivity, like some are just exclusive to Target or Best Buy or GameStop or whatever. Um, and there's also like bigger deluxe figures. Like I think I have the um, I basically made it my my goal to collect as many of the Mandalorians as I could after I fell in love with that show. So I have like the heavy battle Mandalorian. Um, I forget what his official name is, um, but he was like a bigger figure. He's like, I think, like closer to 30 because he was heftier, more plastic, more accessories. Um so there's that kind of stuff, but and and the ultimate result is that the toy lines are being made more and more for adults. And what they're finding is that you know we don't see as many action figures from like newer movies and characters, um, you know, compared to Empire Strikes Back, compared to Return of the Jedi, compared to the because that's really the market. The people who are diehard collectors are still preferring those. I have, you know, like Mandalorian stuff, despite how big that was, is still very rare in terms of actually being part of their toy line. Um, it was all, I mean, like we didn't really get a lot of Mandalorian stuff until the year after that show premiered. And we didn't get any like Baby Yoda, Grogu merchandise until well after because Disney wanted to keep that quiet. Um, so, you know, they they actually and this is to me fascinating that they let the creative aspect of it win out over the business side, because if they could have had. Grogu Baby Yoda merchandise on the shelves for Christmas that year, they would have made billions, but they waited until the next summer. So, you know, I, I'm not going to say props to them because I really don't want to give Disney credit for anything. Um, but, uh, you know, I do admire their restraint in this one regard. But it also kind of says, you know, these toys are increasingly meant to be collectibles put on a shelf, um, you know, and they're not necessarily as much, you know, people are like, you know, saying I've got to get like, you know, uh, you know, I mean, uh, you can't open the box, right? You can't do that. So, you know, a lot of people just like have like just walls full of boxes of figures with Star Wars or Marvel or what have you. Um, and to me, like, you know, that that's two things. I mean, you know, the I think one of the worst things that ever happened to like uh, the comics and toy industry is the idea of the collector or speculator mentality. Um, the idea that I'm going to invest money in this thing because it could be worth something someday. Um, I've never liked that personally. Like, um, I, I, you know, if I can go to comics for just a second, um, I have first appearances of Miles Morales and Spider-Gwen, right? Two very important characters right now. Um, but I bought the Miles Morales ones. I was excited about, oh, hey, there's a new kid being Spider-Man. That's cool. Um, and it was, I'm just like bought it because I want to see what that was about. Now it could potentially, if you have a good copy of it, could be worth like $5,000, but that's not why I bought it. Right. Ditto with Spider-Gwen. A friend of mine was drawing her. So I'm like, I gotta get this book. And I, that could be worth a few hundred dollars now, but I didn't buy him for that reason. Um, but a lot of people will. And, you know, the, the key thing is that, you know, the economics of it are such that scarcity is the important thing. Like these toys, like the Boba Fett, um, I don't know if you're going to get if you're going to pull this later, Eric, but the most valuable Star Wars toy um, was the Boba Fett with the rocket that fires out of his backpack, which was actually referenced in The Mandalorian. And I, I laughed pretty hard. Um, but uh, that one, because of, the, you know, the choking hazard or the potential damage to kids eyes never saw markets. So if you have one. Um, that you probably got it because like there's a prototype or somebody got one that they shouldn't have gotten. It's worth like $150,000 easy right now if you have one. Like, you know, because there's so few of them, right? Man, that could be my retirement. I, I, if you yeah. have one, yeah. 
Um, and, and that's people like, well, I'm going to buy this. You know, it's the same problem the comics industry have. We, you know, we saw people buy like 17 copies of Death of Superman because they're going to retire on that. But DC's like, okay, wow, people really want this. We're going to pay more and more. And so the market gets flooded. They're worth nothing, right? You can find them like 10 cents, at like, you know, the back dusty corner of your comic shop now. Um, so my feeling is basically like I've never been like that. And so like obviously you can see – you can't see these on the audio. Like this is tremendous for audio. But I've got these figures. They're out of the box. I, you know, I, When I have these things, I set them up. I pose them because to me they're little works of art, right? Somebody put time into engineering this, into making this work, to getting all the details right, getting the likeness right. And I find it really interesting to kind of like pose them and kind of look at them and maybe make dumb little scenarios with them. Um, that to me is really kind of what makes this stuff fun. And it's sort of playing along the idea of like the, the idea of toys of creativity. But, you know, there's also the argument that it's a very limited form of creativity, right? Um, if I give you a Darth Vader, how many things can Darth Vader really do, right? You can't really make up a whole story in your head. And I think increasingly with the way that brands are very, very sort of precocious, protective of their intellectual property, it's a lot harder to really have toys that are aimed at like, well, here you can do like, you know, maybe you can tell your own story or something like that. It's more like, hey, here's something that evokes a specific moment from a specific movie. There you go. Um, because we're going to be aiming this at people who are older and don't really have the imagination anymore. I'm not really sure how else to put it. It makes me sad hearing everything you just talked about. It's kind of like, I don't know, I guess it's nostalgia. Um, it's just, it's interesting that the, the toys that are being created today are completely based on nostalgia, right? And they're for collectors and I'm, I'm just feeling my age. It's like, uh, I used to play outside. You know, there are some that are still being made, you know, with younger audiences and I, you still see kids in the toy aisle at Target all the time, right? I have to weave past them as I'm trying to see what Marvel Legends are on sale, okay? Um, you know, but yeah, you know, increasingly like you have like, you know, Todd McFarlane, um, the guy who created Spawn, he's a billionaire because of toys primarily, right? He also kept the rights to Spawn because, you know, that's a whole other podcast. We can talk about image comics in the 90s and, and how, you uh, that whole industry changed as a result. Um, but, you know, a big part of his business is toys and his toys. They're not, you know, they're not articulated. They don't have a lot of like accessories. You can't do a lot. They sort of like get into one pose and stand there. I have the King Shark from Suicide Squad. I love him. He's delightful. You can't do a whole lot with him. He's like a statue with some limited mobility. But again, the, the market is not for kids. It's for the grown up collectors. But that being said, there's still a lot of toys out there for kids. Like that's still a huge part of those brands. And, um, you know, it's it's there's still they're still out there. It's just that the the economics are shifting. You know, Brian, to that point, and this is a whole nother podcast is the non fungible token, sort of the rise of that as a concept, you know, like because kids are not interacting with tangible things in the same way, like they really love their YouTubers. My kids have they're big fans of YouTubers of certain people on TikTok, but they're not things you can hold in your hand other than your phone. Right. But, you know, Eric, back to your question from a ways back, like thinking of something similar. I think about Harry Potter a lot and what it was like to see kids not of my generation have anticipation for something and to be waiting in line. And, and of course, I'm partial to that because of, you know, my area of study that people love books and that makes me happy. But I also feel like it's sort of the last thing that I can remember where you could, where it was a shared experience, a shared, and there is, a, I mean, millions and millions of kids that are going to be able to talk to each other as adults about Harry Potter. And I was fortunate enough to read those out loud to my daughters when they were young. And I feel a part of that, but not in the in the same way. But to me, like that same anticipation of waiting for this thing and being invested in it as a group 
that allowed you to communicate to other people is Harry Potter to me is the last example that I I can think of. And it makes me happy for people that were part of that as as kids. I think Harry yeah. Potter is a, is a great example. And, you know, like you, you know, seeing, you know, photos or, you know, news images of you know, hundreds of kids lining up at their bookstores. I, I can't I can't be happier to, to see that. Um, and you're right. It was a shared experience um, that a, a, a generation grew up with. And um, what's neat about it, too, to me is that although, I, you know, perhaps to varying success, they're now able to share that experience or and that universe that they grew up with with their kids right as, as you were able to do you didn't grow up with harry potter chuck but you you did read them to your to your daughter which was really cool and a different um, kind of marketing like like for me i think what's cool about harry potter is that the marketing switched to clothes like scarves and that's true and hats yeah. like in a way that are different rooms yeah I, yeah, I did nice. want to let all of our listeners know before Ryan chimes in. Um, so Chuck is an English professor as well as our college's dean. Uh, the entire podcast, he's been holding up uh, his Walt Whitman action figure. Uh-huh. So uh, I just wanted everyone to know that we have literary action figures out there, too. And and uh, yeah, Walt Whitman, one of the, the great American poets, is with us today. <laughs> yeah, you know, my sister who had uh, her daughter was was doing the midnight you know, pickups for, for Harry Potter. And one, she, she shared with me once, I wish, I wish I had a picture of this because the idea of it actually makes me, I find very touching, but is all of the cars leaving those midnight pickups would have their internal dome lights on as the kids were reading, uh, their, their brand new books. And there's something about that, that I find quite, quite beautiful. But I, I really think what, what Chuck just said is really important that the shared experience is is really something that um, that that doesn't exist the same way as it as it used to, you know, where people are are watching things as they come up. You know, the last show that I feel like I kind of watched at the same time other human beings were watching it and we were all sort of on maybe lost is probably an example of that probably Breaking Bad was another one. Um, but there just isn't much of that anymore where you, you're like seeing a thing at the same time as a as a big collection of other people are seeing that thing. And I, I mean, there about, have been phenomenons. I mean, you know, Game of Thrones was was yep, massive, but it's true. interesting that's how quickly one. that faded, though. Right. Yes. Um, and and as that you said, there are lots of other shows. I mean, Mad Men, I mean, more for adults than anyone else, yeah. but it's Breaking Bad as well. But I think that's a great point. You know, I was just thinking about as you bring up the shared experience, it's so easy to make friends um, with people who were Star Wars fans um, because of that shared nostalgia. Um, quite literally, you know, I was down in Madison visiting a former colleague of ours, um, uh, Stephen Hall, and yeah, I was out at a brewery and somebody had a Star Wars shirt on and I complimented the shirts and, you know, off we went. And it was just, you know, um, it was an easy thing to talk about. And so I'm just imagining, you know, the, the generation that grew up with Harry Potter, they can do the exact same thing right what house are you in you know all all that kind of cool stuff so which is and that was when i think about my childhood with star wars it so much of it involves now that chuck says that the conversations i had with my friends about it did you see it what what'd you think you know like all of that stuff was really really you know what and actually in context of this the, the show today what toys do you have you know that so much of it was sharing those do you have this do you have this i just got this that kind of thing 
Yep, it's one of the few things like I'm not going to articulate this the way I want to. It's going to come off wrong, but like having a time when having less choice was per, had a byproduct that was productive and you know, I in my schooling as a kid, I would this is also not going to come out right, but I, as a white uh person, I was a minority in the in my schools most often. And like the ability like this is why one thing I'm nostalgic for, I'm nostalgic for 80s Michael Jackson and Prince because those two figures allowed connection across racial lines in the ways that Star Wars did and Harry Potter and, and those kinds of things. But I I sort of long, this is terrible. I long for less choice. I, you know, I'm a socialist. Hey, we're all we're all familiar with the paradox of choice, right? When when we have too many options, whether it's entertainment or, you know, dates or whatever it may be, you can become completely paralyzed and it becomes overwhelming. I mean, this this was a phenomenon during the 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 pandemic stay at home. People actually started getting tired of streaming because there was just too much. I mean, Netflix is putting out an unbelievable amount of of product, right? To varying degrees of quality. Um, and I think people are getting tired of that. Um, and Chuck, I think that's an absolute, I, I lament that as well. I absolutely lament mm -hmm. that as well. My daughters are interested now in vinyl. So we have a record player in the house and the, the draw is weirdly not so much the records, which they can, they can listen to the songs, but they love the, they love the insert material. They love the liner notes with the sort of lost art of that. And like all of the things that, that come with that, but I just wanted it's to a, add, it, go ahead, Ryan. Absolutely. I, I, ran, I ran into Chuck and uh, one of his daughters uh, buying vinyl at, at Barnes & Noble, I think, on Christmas Eve. Yeah, that was Madeline. That's, she's the yeah, it was, it was awesome. And I mean, that experience is so different um, because you have the artwork, you have the liner notes, you have the lyrics, right? Um, and then you just have the experience as well of you, you, you can't skip on a record player, right? And you can't do random, you can't shuffle. You have to sit down and listen to it from beginning to end. I mean, you can stop it obviously, but it's a it's a different visceral experience too. Um, the same thing that like going to see a movie, um, I went to see The Green Knight over the weekend, which was fantastic if you, if you all haven't seen it. Uh, really great, you know, modern interpretation of Sir Gawain and The Green Knight. Um, going to the movies is a different experience than streaming something at home because you can be like, oh, I don't like this. And what ends up happening to me most of the time is I end up spending more time trying to find something to, 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 to consume or to watch that I waste all that time and I have to go to bed so that's what that's what happened to me so i think that's I think it's a great point chuck about um you know having too much choice and i'm really you know i have to bring in my colleagues from democracy and justice studies and see what they have to say about <laughs> do we need a more undemocratic um you know entertainment world um it's that would be a great conversation actually great you know i wanted to say this is going to sound weird and i hope i don't I don't want to minimize anything here, but I, you know, a, a thing that I've—it got me thinking about it with the uh, the the shared experience piece. You know, a thing that I'm moderately nostalgic for right now, and this is going to sound odd, but is the beginning of the pandemic versus where we are right now. Which I know that seems weird, but you know, it, it felt like in the beginning, one there was some community 
that had been sort of around this shared crisis that we were in. And we weren't doing a ton of arguing about the best thing to do. It was like there's this acknowledgement that we should deal with this. But here's the thing that came out in the midst of all that, which was just awful, awful television, was Tiger King. And this was sort of the last show that I feel like I watched with other people, you know, that that this was a thing that as we were talking through some examples that I sort of felt like I'm watching this and other people are, too, and we can talk about it. Now, it was awful, awful television, but there's a piece of me that is still sort of kind of hung up on that. Like, I wish we had we had communed around a different show um, and there were <laughs> there were lots of other better opportunities there. But I did like having that. And I and I so there's a piece of me that misses that. So let's well, I mean, show, everybody. Yeah, I mean, you're right that those early months in March, April, it was uh, we had never really done anything like that before. Um, and and so we had an opportunity and it is kind of a shame. I mean, Tiger King was great, but also awful, as you said. And it is too bad that there wasn't a kind of better um, shared piece of of entertainment or popular culture that we could have rallied around. Although I think in some ways Tiger King uh, epitomizes, you know, our our current country and world in some ways. So, I mean, I think it was, yeah. it was ap- apropos. You know, I, I'm interested to, Ryan's point is a really good one. I, and to me, this would predate the pandemic, but I'm interested in how some of the things we rally around now and will be nostalgic for are coming from different places, you, you know? And so we haven't really talked, I mean, we've mentioned Marvel, but I, I do think there is a community around Marvel that is significant, but, um, my, so I'm thinking about Hamilton and Hamilton as a phenomenon, something that I can see people being nostalgic for in the future. And, and that's something that I bonded with my kids over. They actually knew it before me again, as usual. But um, <laughs> I'm interested in the progress of that, of how, you know, when I'm arguing for less choice, I want to be clear that I'm aware of of the ways in which that excluded non-white communities in, in many yeah, ways, I just want to be clear. But Hamilton reminding me of that, but the way that Lin-Manuel Miranda has then, you know, they sent touring companies so people outside of New York could see it, traveling shows, but then turning it into a film, you know, broadcasting it live that, that I think there are ways, he's kind of teaching people how to create community in that way using modern media, which I, it's still an unformed thought, but I feel like Hamilton is also something that is an unexpected sort of thing that's created huge community that I know that I'll be nostalgic for um, in the future, just because of how much I love rap music and history. I mean, it, it was crazy to think about. I mean, the the book um, is, is this massive, you know, not necessarily dry, but it's a, it's a, it's a, written by a historian. It's, it's a, it's a Does biography. Is that Ron Yep, correct. Um, yep. Ron Chernow. And to think that, you know, an, an academic, a popular academic, um, biography of, yeah, to what most of, of people, an obscure founding father could become this cultural phenomenon and turned into, um, you know, uh, an amazing musical production that's that's pretty crazy i'm just thinking about all my historian colleagues who are hoping that their book will be the next thing that lynn manuel miranda you know turns into like, a, if there a were worldwide hamilton action figures if there were hamilton action figures i would buy the full set it's a great question are there not i, I, I do not know maybe there are i better start looking 
don't look it up, Chuck, because uh, you know Christmas <laughs> is right around the corner, and I've been looking for a gift for you. So we'll find out. <laughs> Ryan's Ryan's on it. Um, so why don't we why why don't we connect um to uh, both the prequels and perhaps even more importantly the sequel trilogy um and uh, J.J. Abrams's use of nostalgia. I think that might be a, a good a good place to to go. Uh, but also with the Mandalorian and the Clone Wars. Um, and uh, Rebels TV shows, um, if any of us watch those. Um, but uh, a lot of critics, when um, The Force Awakens was released in, in 2005, offered a critique that it was basically, you know, a beat-by-beat beat, um, kind of uh, update or homage of Star Wars A New Hope. Um, as Brian pointed out earlier, um, you know, Star Wars is basically a beat-by-beat beat retelling of uh, The Hidden Fortress, um, uh, the great Kurosawa film. Uh, Lucas drew inspiration from a lot of places, but if you watch The Hidden Fortress, um, which is you know, one of the great films of all time, it's it's very, very similar. Um, so how much, uh, you know, um, veracity is there to that, um, that the the sequels, um, instead of um, branching out and creating, um, you know, or breaking new ground, um, were simply, you know, retreading Star Wars's legacy um, and, and and was 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 uh, just benefiting from nostalgia rather going in new directions. I mean, like, um, I, I just want to say there are, in fact, Hamilton toys. Um, they're they're mostly Funko Pops, but um, we know what Chuck is getting for Christmas. <laughs> um, you just ruined the surprise, Brian. <laughs> I'm very sorry, but uh, that's why they always said I was a ruiner. Anyway, um, so, yeah, I think there is a lot of truth to that. And, and you know, part of it is, um, you know, Abrams as a as a filmmaker and as a creative has always been kind of interested in his own nostalgia. I mean, you look at a lot of the movies he's made, there's definite clear, clear callbacks like the Spielberg era um films uh you know from the 80s you know et um you know you have like stand by me which wasn't a spielberg film but you know what i mean that kind of uh that kind of material um and you know force awakens is absolutely that and i think part of it was uh intentional to try to win back some of the fans who maybe put off by the prequels um but uh you know and, and certainly there's an argument to be made and i've had you know conversations with star wars fans who are just like you know there's this is a cycle right um it's like you know the the you know history doesn't always repeat but it rhymes and so you know there is that idea of like well why wouldn't they have just given up on a planet killing weapon like why wouldn't you know why why wouldn't they do that again right like why you know um how do these themes and, and, and to me again the parts of those pre those sequels that are interesting are not the kind of like oh here's a call, a call back to this here's it's more like here's that's really interrogating the fallout of an ongoing never-ending galactic war right the 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 names change but the forces don't right the impact it has on people around them but it absolutely is and, and part of that is the fact that when disney buys star wars they're not buying it saying we want to really just revolutionize and go in weird new directions they're like this is a brand and it is a brand that we can make saleable across a, for a vast variety of consumer goods and theme park experiences and you know uh films and tv shows and and we can have our comics uh, arm at marvel publish this and so they're like what's the stuff that sells the stuff that sells is this well we can't just go back and redo those movies we can't remake or reboot them so what we're going to do is we're going to do another movie updated for modern sensibilities we're going to for instance pretend that there are more than two women in the entire galaxy 
which was a start. Um, we're going to pretend that there are more than two people of color in the entire galaxy. Um, unfortunately, they are going to get bullied off of social media by uh, reprobates and uh, terrible people. But we're Disney. We don't really care about that, um, you know, because we got our money. Um, you know, that's uh, that's a whole other conversation. Just the, the just the really toxic and terrible nature of the Star Wars fan. And that really becomes fueled by nostalgia in a lot of ways. But we don't really have time to get into that. Um but, you know, it's to me, that's exactly what these movies are. And, you know, you all blanched, just just were horrified when I said that I think The Last Jedi is the best one. And part of the reason that it is is because it also basically looks at nostalgia and says, hey, maybe things weren't so great. Maybe things aren't perfect. Maybe the things that we look up to and we aspire to will let us down. But that's OK. It doesn't make them less good or less valuable. But we have to have distance from it. We have to understand it and put it into context and in so doing kind of chart our own course. And then J.J. Abrams came back and said, OK, OK, sorry, 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 sorry. Sorry about all that. We're sorry to challenge you. Here's the Empire. The Emperor is back. And then here's Lando. And it's going to be great. Don't it's going to be fine. And that was really the biggest disappointment of that movie. I <laughs> will say, be fine, though, everybody, Bobby calm Rick, down. <laughs> yeah. One of the, I reject uh, all of that. I, I, I reject Rick all that. Is one of the greatest Star Wars weirdos. I one of my big fandoms in Star Wars are the background weirdos, the little aliens, little puppets. Babu Frick, top notch, saved that movie for me. Babu Frick was a great yeah. character. I agree. Yeah, I do actually think I think Brian is mostly right about what happened as far as the tr the nostalgia trajectory. I I hate the Last Jedi for a lot of reasons, none of which were captured in that specific argument. But I agree with you that that is what happened. That 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 JJ Abrams that that trajectory is is kind of how things fall through. Um, I I think there's something really interesting about the way um, I guess the struggle actually I think Star Wars has had trying to replicate what Marvel has had so much success with. And I actually think it's worth noting how many different people have struggled to try and replicate the the extended universe. I mean, Justice League has failed miserably at it, not quite as bad as the dark universe that uh, they were trying to create with what Swamp Monster and Mummy and all that, uh, whoever was trying to create that. You know, I, I think James Bond has actually talked about trying to create a sh the shared universe off and on for a little while. Then not, they don't have the characters for it, but um, they've, they've considered that and, and it, frankly it might roll out once this Daniel Craig movie comes out and they have to reboot things in in a few years you know I think it's worth noting how many different groups have sort of failed at that um but I do you know the thing that I'm really hung up on now since we've been talking about it is what will my kids be nostalgic for in in 15 years or 10 years you know what are those things going to be will it be Marvel will it be um, I, I don't know. I mean, that that's the thing that I've had the most success getting them interested in. They really love and are intrigued by Marvel uh, more so than any of these other things. Um, but I, I don't I mean, know. As we were talking about earlier, a lot of the, the media that um, people are consuming younger, it, it's ephemeral, right? Uh, the TikTok, YouTube stars. Yep. I mean, are, are, are they going to be reminiscing about those in in, in 10 or 15 years? I, I, I hope not, but um, they are. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, they are. I think it's really interesting. I mean, my kids literally when they are allowed screen time, they have YouTube playing on the big TV while they play like Roblox or Minecraft on their 
on their iPads, you know? And so like, so who are the things? Like, is it just gonna, is it gonna be Minecraft? Is that the thing or Roblox or whatever? You know, is that the thing they'll be nostalgic for? I don't know. I mean, you can see it now. Like you look at like Gen Z and I, and I really have never liked the assigning of labels to generation. Like, you know, the year you're born shouldn't define your whole personality. It's just kind of like, okay, this is the circumstance to which you were born. I'm but, a proud see, angsty Gen Xer. But yeah, me too. But also the month you're born should, right? Because I'm a Sagittarius and I've got something <laughs> I mean, to say about sure, that's whatever. Our, that's our next podcast. That's whatever our next podcast. Um, but, you know, you see a lot of it. Like, they're looking like, oh, man, remember SpongeBob? Like, yeah. Remember, like, you know, like, what about this guy from, like, the, you know, the, like, 2000, like, you know, iCarly is the whole thing. Like, there's already nostalgia and reboots for iCarly, which I thought was still on the air. I have no idea what the youth are up to. OK, um, it's it's very much like, you know, I see people like saying, like, looking back fondly on, you know, retro video gaming with the Xbox 360. And I just want to, like, shake them like, no, you don't get to do that. That is not that is not a thing you can do. But, you know, nostalgia, I think, just happens faster and faster, especially because of the time we're in. When you look around, we have, you know, not to bring the room down, but there was just that report that came out that said we're basically we already missed our window to stop climate change. Um, you know, you look at the pandemic and you look at the economic prospects facing a lot of young people. Yeah, they're going to want to retreat back to the days of SpongeBob and iCarly. They're going to want to go back to the, you know, um, playing uh, Pokemon and that kind of stuff. That's going to be where they want to go. Nostalgia, I think, you know, ha there are problems with it. But I think it also is kind of a, you know, psychological, not to take the psychologist thunder here, um, but I think there is sort of a psychological balm that it provides. And I can never fully fault anybody who wants to say, hey, you know what makes me happy is when I was a kid, I want a Boba Fett or I wanted an ad at and I'm you know now I have the chance to get one and I have it in my office and it reminds me of better times while I'm sitting here working on expense reports that to me is what is there's nothing wrong with that collect away what's, what's more interesting to me I mean you know I, I'm sure our our elders when we were kids didn't necessarily understand our attraction to a lot of the things that we are now nostalgic for right um it would be more interesting I think to talk to some Gen Z folks, uh, you know, perhaps on a, a, a later podcast about what they think about nostalgia. And um, I mean, I think it is in many ways a generational thing, right? Because you you have this window as a, as a kid when you're developing your worldview, when you're developing your sensibility, when you're developing your personality. And I mean, I'm, I'm in my early 40s now. I, I can't possibly connect with a lot of those things. And that's nobody's fault. It's just I have no interest in watching TikTok or uh, or people on TikTok or a bunch of the YouTube things or playing Pokemon Go. And I mean, um, that's OK, right? I would rather just watch A New Hope over and over again. Um, but uh, that's so I think it's a great question, Ryan, that you brought up about what, you know, the the generation now um, and not even Gen, Gen Z, because they're starting to age out of what will be nostalgic. Right. Um, it's the the next generation who are. Um, you know, only now coming into their, you know, their their double digit years, what they will be nostalgic about um, in 10, 15 or 20 years. So it's a great, great question. When are we going to get something, that Paw Patrol movie? There's something uh, to that, too, in that plus. we have to earn our audiences is something that I think people like J.J. Abrams and you know, maybe they don't quite latch on to yet, but like, you know, quality production, and I'm just going to say writing, there is there are writers behind most of the things that we are nostalgic for and that we've talked about and the need for good writing. But in terms of resolution, I don't think 
you thinking of the new Star Wars movies that we need resolutions that are beyond, okay, blow this thing up and the problems are solved. And I mean, at least with Marvel and I, I forget what the last installment was called, but I mean, at least there was an effort there that the resolution was some kind of healing and bringing something back rather than destroying something. And I know that's an oversimplification of of that, but there I think younger people need different types of resolution than the kinds of things that we're nostalgic for. And there's though I would I would say I think the original trilogy, Darth Vader's redemption is is so important there. I don't think the destruction of the Death Star and the Emperor is is necessarily the most important part of that story. Um, it's the redemption. And I, I think in the, in the sequel trilogy, we don't have that to the same extent, right? I don't think Kylo Ren's sacrifice is in any way, shape, or form as emotional um, or full of depth as what happens with Darth Vader slash Anakin. Um, I mean, it still brings tears to my eyes. Like, when vader makes that sacrifice i don't like the the no that george lucas added to the the blu-ray um again but um but i think you're right though that 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 that's an important component to all of these stories is that there has to be something deeper than just blowing up right and i think that is without question something that's absolutely lacking from the most recent sequel trilogy of star wars well any final thoughts? I've really enjoyed this uh, conversation, and I know our listeners will, too. This has been really, really awesome. So thank all of you. Thanks to all of you for for um, for talking Star Wars and nostalgia. Um, anyone want to conclude with any final thoughts about um, nostalgia, Star Wars, anything else in your minds? I like Star Wars. I think Star Wars is great. <laughs> I will say I loved Star Wars when I was a kid. I think it's okay now. I'm happy to have watched the the original trilogy with my kids as a way that they got to understand something about me and in the way that reading Harry Potter with them and being interested in things they're interested in teaches me about them in some ways. And I, I'm going to veer away from Star Wars, but I, I'm really interested in things that succeed for multi-generations, right? And like different generations to your point about generations having nostalgia for the same thing or the same creator. And I've been thinking about Stephen King a lot in this way lately in that my mother introduced me to Stephen King and I read, have read a lot of Stephen King. My kids read Stephen King. And so there's like three generations of this thing. Maybe we're not nostalgic for the same actual works, but I, I'm interested in those things. Hamilton's that's why I brought that up earlier. That seems like a transgenerational sort of of phenomenon. Well, but. it's interesting you bring that that up. I was talking to a, a solid millennial, and what's fascinating to me as a Gen Xer, a very I was a young Gen Xer, but grunge is back. Like it's 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 in fashion. Damn um, right it is, man. You know, all, all the all the, the, the youth in their twenties. They me. love, they love, they love that stuff. I'm not sure how like deep into it they're going i don't know if like people are listening to like l7 and seven year bitch and stuff like that but like the the mainstream you know uh smashing pop, popular grunge is 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 huge particularly the fashion like i i find that um that kind of stuff really really fascinating um as long as disco doesn't come back and the, <laughs> the, yeah. the accompanying clothing but it probably will a, a variation of multiple times yeah like, yeah a variation of that, Chuck, is how often characters 
have come back. And so, you know, Nancy Drew, my, my wife was obsessed with Nancy Drew when she was a kid. And those books have been written by different authors, like new versions of them, you know, that my kids are now interested in. Um, there's a new TV show. So the, the, you know, the, the reboot culture has allowed us to bring that stuff back in a way that is it's not the same author the way like the King example, but it's some of the same characters kind of coming yeah. back and being, being part Even of that. Even for adults, Perry Mason on, right. on HBO. Yeah. Yeah. I saw just, this will be my final, my final edition here today, but that is, I saw an ad last night for he's all that, which is she's all that, <laughs> uh, essentially rebooted as a, as a male <laughs> version. And it, it seems to be that it's like the next generation. Um, that it's because Rachel Lee Cook is in it as a mom character, I think. So, and we haven't even mentioned Cobra Kai yet, but that's all. <laughs> I just finished that. True. Yep. I, I just think we're going to have to do a part two um, of this show at some point. Well, Chuck Ryback, Ryan Martin, Brian Carr, uh, my colleagues and friends at, at uh, UWGB, thank you so much for um, joining me on this uh, crossover podcast. This was my first time doing a, a crossover podcast between three great shows, which was really awesome. And uh, thanks to our listeners, of course, for joining us. I'd also like to thank uh, Jared Roll again. He is the curator of Star Wars, The Nostalgia Awakens. He was not able to join us today to talk Star Wars and his his amazing collection um but without his exhibit um i would not have put together this 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 amazing episode uh so thanks to jared and uh for um you know rekindling some of that imagination i just want to end with an anecdote um at the uh, very end of my experience seeing uh, the nostalgia awakens at the oshkosh public museum as i was saying it's it's a really wonderful exhibit um he shows it all over the place you listeners you'll you'll certainly be able to have a chance to see it again um but as i was uh, walking through the exhibit looking at all of these toys that reminded me of my own childhood I um, eavesdropped on a father who was exploring the collection with uh, his two young children. And um, the father's enthusiasm for the toys and nostalgia um, and the connection that he had with his kids, that they were also excited about it, um, that was immediate to me and such a strong and cheerful reaction um, by his children to that experience and these toys just really made me smile. And so it was clear to me that Star Wars allowed a deep connection and sense of wonder shared between generations. Um, our childhoods matter and uh, Jared's awesome exhibit reminded me of everything I loved about storytelling, both real and imagined. And it was a unique experience to return, however briefly, to the memories of my childhood when dreams of becoming a Jedi and adventuring in a galaxy far, far away fueled my young imagination. And indeed, it still does today. Thanks, that was guys. great. Oh, you left. <laughs> Take care. Oh.